Hello and welcome to today's episode of Great Quarter, guys. I am your host, Andrew Cox, here with my man, Kevin Hill. Today's a bit of a, a celebratory episode. This is our episode number 25, the first of uh, hopefully many mile markers. Exactly right, 25. I, I guess 26 would be an even six months, right? Uh, yeah, that it, would be. It, That's right. I guess it, that it makes sense seem... if we do one once a week. I think we may have had a break in there for holiday or something. But We might but have, yeah. but it's been about six months. Yeah, it's been going wild, strong. Time really flies, doesn't it? It did. Every month except for March seemingly flied. You know, well, yeah, March yeah. has seemingly was, was the longest month of my life. April has gone by much quicker for me, at least. I looked down and I was like, dang, half the month is uh, is gone. You're right. I didn't mean... I, I guess I did realize we were in April, but it still feels like March. It feels like a, like a crazy March time still dragging into April, and we're we are halfway done with halfway April. Done with April. Tomorrow's the fifteenth. The stimulus checks. There's supposed to be a whole batch of them go out by the fifteenth. Uh, taxes aren't the fifteenth this year. They're yep. July fifteenth. They have an extension, and uh, it's a it's a whole new world right now. It is. It's moving by quicker than than it, than it did before. We're, we're seemingly adjusting. Let's go ahead and jump into a little bit of our, what we're going to be doing for you today, what we're talking about last week. Uh, we, we'll cover our long shorts that we did last week. We'll give a little update to those. So we had two long shorts last week. They were, uh, the first was a jog, weekly jobless claim. So we asked when the data came out last Thursday, were they going to be higher or lower than the previous week? They came in just below, but still with a really scary number. So uh, 6.6 million last week. Kevin, what do you think about this week? That's a really good question. What I think about this week, it's, it's weird because they adjusted oppositely, right? Yeah, they adjusted so, so, so up basically, two weeks ago, down last week. Yeah, so we were having that conversation earlier because the initial numbers were six point six and then six point eight, but I guess they flip flopped. So I lost both my long shorts because of uh, of the adjusted numbers, but not really a laughing matter. You no, know, not 16 at all. Million uh, job losses over the last three weeks. Uh, it is serious. I, I think it's going to be down a little bit. I, I think it's still going to be a, a in any other case. You know, a year ago, it'd still be a shocking number. But I think uh, around four million inch. I agree with you. I, th- I think it's going to be lower than six million. I think we've almost found our natural kind of ceiling there. That we, we, we've heard a lot of stories from different states, whether it's Florida or California, even where they've they've had difficulty. Uh, they've had some lag in time where people haven't been able to get the the benefits that they've applied for. So I think we may have met kind of our infrastructure ceiling there with with about six million. Yeah, I think so too. So so basically, ten ninety nines aren't normally. Uh, normally eligible for unemployment benefits, but it, it looks like, uh, well, now they are. And if you're a 1099 or independent contractor, you had to actually call, in most states, you had to call and physically talk to somebody. And that's taken two or three weeks for for that infrastructure to catch up. So I, I think I think it'd be more normal going forward and hopefully uh, some restrictions will be lifted in some states in the next I don't know, few weeks, you know, that that we'll all start returning to some semblance of normalcy sometime soon. Right. So another another point that we're not really used to seeing, no normalcy right now in the outbound tender volume index. We we asked last week if we believed that by today, that outbound tender volume index, which is a measure of the volumes that move in the US, we we asked would it be below nine thousand? That would be you know, drastically below the, the starting point in March 2018 of 10,000. We both uh, went long and we were right there. So today, as of as of today, April 14th, the Apple Tinder Volume Index is a little bit over 8,800. So this is, you know, this is a holiday type level. We've we've never seen normal non-holiday levels with Apple Tinder volumes uh, at quite this low. You, you're right. I mean, it's, it's 
it's, it's what nine nine and a half percent, nine and a quarter percent below twenty nineteen mm-hmm. for this week. So. So basically, it's kind of plateaued a little bit. We have the holiday to move through uh, for for really clean year-over-year numbers. Uh, hopefully, it doesn't fall too much further from here. Um, there are some encouraging signs, though. Yeah, we'll, we'll save a little bit of that discussion for our talk on the DHL Supply Chain Pricing Power Index towards the end of the show. Uh, and here we go. Our next segment is a continuation of the new segment that I did two weeks ago. It's called mm-hmm. One Good Piece, where I try to find one good piece of data in this time of, of just horrible and, and scary economic data. This week, is uh, it's a little bit of a discussion because this, this data point... It has some pros and cons to it. Uh, last week, the the one good piece of data was regional differences in foot traffic for in retail foot traffic data. As I noted, places that hadn't been hit as hard by the coronavirus, their foot traffic data didn't worsen as bad as the other areas, which gave me a little bit of encouragement that we could have a snappy, you know, speedy retail recovery. This week, another point that could uh, point towards a speedy retail recovery. So this is auto sales out of the Wuhan area, which of course was the epicenter, the original epicenter of, of COVID-19. We've had, we've heard multiple, we've heard reports from multiple dealerships uh, in Wuhan that new vehicle demand, the, the, the demand for new cars at these dealerships has quickly returned to pre-crisis levels. So I, I see a little, I see a bunch of read-throughs here. One, I believed that durable goods would have a much slower recovery than non-durable goods when this whole thing is over. But this is signs that if the U.S. has any semblance to a Chinese recovery, then we could see durable goods snap back pretty quickly. What, what do you think, Kevin? I, I think you're right on the read-throughs. Uh, the, the assumptions that the U.S. economy will mirror the, the Chinese economy or Huan, uh, I, I, I don't really know. I mean, this is a tough tough uh, comparison to make. I know uh, a friend of mine who's in the used car business, kind of one of those uh, buy here, pay here mm-hmm. uh, places, a lot of people are using stimulus checks or, or basically the, the promise of stimulus checks to to promise down payments, right? So they'll put up $500 and, and basically promise their, their stimulus checks uh, to the car. So it's been pretty healthy for him. So people are still buying cars. Uh, you know, I guess if you need a car, you, you're going to buy a car. Uh, but I, I I don't know. I well, don't know if it's going to be as, as sharp as it probably be still V shaped, but not quite as sharp as 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 what we're seeing in the Chinese data. Yeah, that was one point that I uh, wanted to make was this this if people want a car if they need a car they'll go get a car. That may be one of the reasons that people in China are buying the cars now is because they think it's safer to drive a personal car than to get on public transport. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is they they still having although they don't have any new cases in Wuhan for the last couple of days. People are still afraid. This is this is uh, definitely weighing on the psyche of, you know, travelers and workers and everything else. Uh, and this also could just be a difference between the Chinese and the U.S. recovery. You know, China did more to to help the businesses to, to allow them to keep their workers rather than, than the U.S. did kind of direct disbursements. Uh, so it's just a, dif- a difference in uh, a difference in the way that we approach this. But, you know, it, I think that the, the U.S. consumer, the reason I don't believe durable goods will snap back as quick is because a lot of people have lost their jobs. You know, we've had, like we just said, with the with the weekly jobless claims, will likely push over twenty million in the last month. That that weighs on the American psyche, on the on the consumer sentiment. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people will be uh, a month or two behind on the bills, right? Whether it's mortgage, rent, utilities, uh, whatever it may be. So there's going to be some time of, of catching up, getting back to work, getting your bills paid uh, before you go out and buy really 
durable items uh, or, or long-lasting. But there's there's some demand out there. I, I think everyone has already went out and bought all the the uh, remodeling and redesigning at Home Depot and Lowe's. I think that that will probably drop off a little bit because yep. that's what everyone has, has been doing that I, I've talked to. I think everyone's painted their house. Right. If you own a home, you probably painted it uh, over the last four or five weeks. So that will be something to watch. Uh, I, I can start seeing a little bit of a brightening uh, or a light at, at the, the end, end of the tunnel. The tunnel. Yeah. It's still, you know, far away. But just, we're I'm, looking I'm more for optimistic anything. now well, than I have been uh, throughout March well, over the last six weeks, probably yeah, six I mean, seven I, weeks. I think we've we've had so much bad news. We're just looking for any any good news. That's why we started this one good piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, let's bring in one good guy. Is Ryan Schreiber about ready to uh, to bring in? Uh, he is. He, I, I just saw a message while you were talking uh, that he had dropped off, but it looks like he is ready to get back in. Right. And for a little bit of a, a promo as we get him up on screen, is it goes back to a TQL story that, that we published last week uh, about non-competes and uh, non-solicitation agreements and kind of uh, how those are worked, especially in the transportation industry. And Ryan's going to come on and talk more about you know the differences between the two because there's there's often some some confusion between those two uh, contracts and kind of how you can protect your business, but also encourage a great corporate culture. And I see Ryan Schreiber right there, and you are back. Uh, before yeah. we begin, legal disclaimer: we uh, Ryan's a lawyer, but we are not giving out any legal advice whatsoever. And you know. Uh, He's not a practicing lawyer. I'm retired. He's a retired I'm lawyer. Retired. Uh, but we're going to talk about <laughs> we're going to talk about non-competes, non-solicitations. But we are not giving out any legal advice, whether or not you know what you you've signed is enforceable. Nothing like that. Just the overall philosophy about the two, the differences between the two, and how they're kind of used in the industry. Ryan is a consultant at Carrier Direct, and this will be more consultative than than legal because it won't be legal whatsoever is that good enough disclaimer yeah that's like that was that's pretty thorough absolutely (laughs) like nothing i am no one i am no one's attorney so like don't take uh, anything that i say as legal advice and ryan ryan uh, sorry uh, we're having some technical difficulties we have some static um let's uh flip you guys back to flip you back to the studio or back to the control room to, to work that out. Uh, but we could, you're a lot of static. Yeah, so we'll, we'll bring Ryan back uh, just here in a moment. And we'll, we'll, get, his, we'll get his topic or his, his uh, discussion on the DHL supply chain pricing power index. We'll go ahead and do that update now. And maybe Ryan will have some points to talk about the, the market environment right now anyway, but while we wait on him. Uh, so again, the DHL supply chain pricing power index, it fell 15 points this week. We were at 60 last week, which would have been you know, slightly some power to the carriers. We, we felt that the carriers were still in a, in a pricing power position at that point. But that position is just melting away every day that goes by, isn't it, Kevin? It, it is. So, so we talked about it a little bit on our long short from, from last week is that we're about 10% below uh, levels in 2019. We had a huge run-up, had a really great peak where we're 30% up year over year. And that's uh, been falling. If you if you watch freight waves at all, you've heard this before because this is what we talked about quite a bit on the the tender volume index uh, flying down uh, rejections. I, I looked this morning, and that's uh, that's that's worrisome as well. They're down to five point one one percent 
and that was from a high, and that's basically out of every 100 loads tendered, uh, roughly five are getting rejected. A week, maybe two weeks ago, that was about 20 were getting rejected, or close to 20 were getting rejected for every 100, which shows very tight capacity, run up in freight. Now it's back down to uh, 2019 levels, and 2019 levels, especially for rejection and capacity, were not good. Right. I mean, this was a... It was an overcapacity environment that we experienced for all of 2019. Our outbound tender rejection index is now below the 2019 average. Volumes and rejections seem to be falling without a floor, even though for the last two days we have seen a little bit of a mm-hmm. slowing, a deceleration in the decline uh, on the volume side at least. So that's a slightly encouraging, but I, I, I really don't think this is. I think 8,800 is not the floor. I think we keep falling a little bit. You know, just you got to think about it this way: the businesses are not open, uh, the 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 consumers are still at home working, mm-hmm. or still at home, so we're, they don't have any money to spend. We're not they're not out there buying goods. There's nothing to buy, so I just don't see volumes uh, picking up anytime soon. I think we'll be down for a while, but I've just gotten word that uh, Ryan Schreiber right, is back online, back. hopefully without any static this time. How Ryan? you doing, Ryan? Talk to me. I mean, apparently not so good. I'm having lots of technical difficulties today. Well, you sound, so that's, you sound much that's, better. That's par for the course for that's you. Good. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But we can hear you loud and clear now. Technology's really, really hard. Right. It is. It really is. So where were we? What were you, what were you talking about just as we, we cut yeah. you off? Uh, no, no worries. So we were talking a little bit about like non-competes versus non-solicits and how common they are. You know, non-competes from my like from what I've seen from uh, is is still the more common um, vehicle to, for a business to try and protect itself. And the the range of sort of outcomes in terms of how stringently written they are seem to be how sophisticated the business um, um, is. If they just want an off-the-shelf non-compete, it's going to just restrict people from doing everything, no matter what their place was in the organization. But a more sophisticated business usually has uh, more dialed-in non-competes. So, so okay. So, because basically, I, I think I just did non-solicit. Maybe I did a non-compete. I don't know. It's been a few years ago uh, since since I was as a freight broker. So, and I know that I couldn't go out and contact my, my customers, but I could work within the industry. How, from, from your point of view, how heavily enforced are non-competes and non-solicits in the industry? Well, you know, in terms of how like legally enforceable they are that's not something i can necessarily really speak to yeah not not how legally enforceable but how you know what kind of resources do companies put behind behind to actually go after and 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 try to enforce them at least yeah i've definitely seen it's very common for companies to send like a cease and desist letter if they figure out where you're going uh and like what you're going to be doing Hey, just a reminder, future organization, this employee can't do these things, and we intend to litigate uh, if they do. It's expensive to go after somebody for a non-compete. So it's not particularly common in my experience to see companies actually try and take that to the court. That being said, I, one of my favorite phrases in business is just because they won't win doesn't mean they won't litigate to cause a problem, which is why this conversation 
around where non-competes and non-solicits actually fit is a really, really important one to have. It is. It is. And and as a business owner, if you own a logistics company, whether it's a carrier or a freight broker, you you do have to protect your business, right? Because yeah, all you absolutely. have is your list of customers. But how do you go about that and also encourage a really great corporate culture? Yeah, that's such an important line to walk, right? Like there's legal implications and there's practical implications to everything that you do. From a legal perspective, or excuse me, from a business owner's perspective, you, you train people, you invest in them, you invest in technology, you invest in these customer relationships. That is valuable and should be protected. At the same time, you want to create an environment where if somebody's not happy, they can leave easily. Uh, and, and so the reason that non-competes become really kind of overbearing is they trap you. And that can really negatively impact your corporate culture. So to answer your question, Kevin, which is how do you walk that line? Look to non-solicit to solve that problem and not non so you're of the opinion it's better to have non-solicits in place rather than a blanket non-compete where you can't work in that industry again? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a non-solicit protects your customer relationships. It can protect your carrier relationships. It can protect your uh, employees or ex-employees from soliciting your current employees. And that is really what you, at the end of the day, want to protect. As a transportation provider, you are a sales organization with an execution. I've said that on this podcast before. So what you really need to protect, to your point, Kevin, is the revenue part of your mm -hmm. business. That's drivers, that's customers, that's other employees, and that's third-party carriers if you're an intermediary. That's a really good point. It's is a good point. And basically, I, I feel like oftentimes a non-compete with someone who's 24, 25, not really, probably not, probably an average freight broker, right? It's, it's, it's probably, it probably keeps them in their role long past their productivity. I mean, how that, good they are is not even really the important consideration. It's, it's whether or not that's an appropriate vehicle to do what you want to do across your business. The reason I'm not an attorney anymore is because attorneys are really bad at understanding what you actually want to accomplish with your business. So a non-compete certainly can protect you or as a good vehicle for trying to protect your customer list, et cetera. There are other implications across your business that your attorney is the wrong person to help you figure out. And that's the culture piece, or that's the sales uh, strategy piece. Hey, Ryan, you said you, you prefer and you would advise your people, uh, if, if we were giving legal advice here, you would advise them to do a non-solicit rather than a non-compete. But once that non-compete is signed, let's say that I, I start a, a I get a job as a broker somewhere and I signed a non-compete. Is there any way, is there any legal way that down the road that company can say, you know what, I would rather have you in a non-solicit. Is there any way to change that? Or once that contract, that non-compete is signed, is it kind of locked until, until yeah. it's broken? 
every contract can be renegotiated. I mean, like, uh, it's just both parties have to agree to it. Before a contract is signed, uh, one party can unilaterally change the terms that they're willing to agree to. Uh, but like you see this in sports sometimes, right? Like, Hey, I'm willing to pay you $20 million a year for five years. They don't, you don't sign. And then, Oh, well, I signed this other guy. So now I can only give you 15 million after it's signed. Both parties have to agree to uh, an adjustment mm-hmm. to the underlying contract. So if we were to put aside non-competes and non-solicitations and just talk about corporate culture, because, uh, you know, as you said a minute ago, freight brokerages, especially was just company, it's, it's basically a sales and marketing company, right? You're non-asset based. Yeah, what you have is your, your client list. And you've been around sales and marketing companies. I have too. They can turn into pretty toxic environments pretty quickly, right? So what are some of your guiding principles of keeping a really a great corporate culture on a sales floor? It is all about openness. I think transparency is an overused term, but openness is really the thing that you want to create. I talked about this recently on Carrier Direct Office Hours, which is our podcast, where I laid out for everyone that listened, you should, in sales, think about how you want, excuse me, in recruiting, you should think about what the last day an individual's employment looks like and and what does success look like on that day and be open about the fact that this is probably not your last job and work backwards to their first day to figure out how to maximize for that. And being open about the fact that this is probably not your last job frees everyone up to have conversations that are maybe more difficult if there's fear around losing the job. So when there's pain in that role, the first thing a person does if there's not openness is look outside your organization to solve that problem for them. Hey, I need another job because if I bring this up, I don't know if they're going to think I'm looking for another job. If you have an open where somebody can raise their hand and say, hey, I have a problem here and this is bothering me and I want to work through this without that fear of repercussion, their first place they're going to look is inside your organization. That's the number one I think a lot of it stems from, and I think we were on LinkedIn last night talking about this, is uh, Jameen had a, a question at, that we both answered, or, or someone had a post. Maybe it was your post, actually, that we were answering. Uh, but it's really differentiation, right? It's hard to differentiate yourself, and and I, I feel like it's hard to, to reach that openness about expectations and the role if you're not... Yeah, as a company, trying to differentiate yourself in this in this space. Does that make sense? I disagree. Yeah? Uh, yes, it makes sense to me, Kevin, but I'm going to disagree with you here. Mm-hmm. I actually think that creating the openness is a differentiator. Very many companies do not do that. That is a foundational piece to differentiation. No, I, I, I can agree with that. Yeah, you know, basically it's... It's not a chicken and egg argument, but it, it could be. Uh, but I 
no, I agree with you on that. I, I think um, the openness can be a differentiator because they're hard to come by. As, it's not that hard either. It's it's a change of mentality, certainly, but it's not. That sounds hard. You're actually giving up nothing to do it. True, but it, it seems like it's a very hard thing for a lot of business owners to to do and managers as well is change that mental state to, to more openness. Yeah, it comes down. It definitely comes down to what I would describe as professional empathy. But if you excel at sales, you have to have empathy for your customer's journey. Mm -hmm. And it's just a slight change of the dials, if you will, to understand that that same professional empathy applies to your employees. Yes. Yeah, you're right. Uh, but it's something that, that a lot of companies haven't mastered whatsoever. Certainly. Yeah, I, they, certainly they struggle with it. Yeah. And I, it's because it's in, in part because I think they're not aware. And I would say the other input to that is uh, they're not sure how to, to the extent that they even are aware. Like, how do I start having those conversations? How do I start sharing with my employees it's it's a it's a traditionally been a fear based uh, management style. It has, and it goes back to uh, you know, especially freight brokerages or, or trucking company, mostly freight brokers, because that's my reference point. Is freight brokerages that are trying to scale, but they're trying to scale with that fear. They're trying to scale with unscalable type of processes that are. I won't really say fear based, but. Though they're not that openness space. It's basically an entrepreneur who is a really good salesperson and who knows how to do it, has made these sales, but then you have to teach a whole crew of people how to do what you do, which is very difficult if you're a natural born, you know, sales that's and marketer. The, that, that's the best point, which is that like the the biggest thing that's difficult for anyone to understand is that the things that are easy for that person are not easy and obvious for everyone. So if you've been a great salesperson historically and you you built this business off of your back, it's hard to understand why when you hire most people it's a disaster because you're hiring the wrong people, you're or you're training people the wrong way or not at all most likely. And you say, "Man, this is so easy for me. I can't understand why you're not getting." And I mean, listen, I'll raise my hand and say I used to be one of those people. So, like, this is coming from a place of, of honest and open, like, reflection on myself. But that's the, that's the hard part. This is easy for me. Why don't you get it? Yeah, it's one of the reasons why some of the great athletes are horrible coaches, right? Because it just, they have just such natural ability that it's just easy for them, and they can't understand why it's not easy for others. And what, some of the great, you know, mostly all the great coaches – have been marginal people or have never even made it to that that level because they had to to learn everything about the game to make up for their lack of natural ability. A huge miss we see all the time is promoting your highest performers solely because they're high performers into management roles. Mm -hmm. Those are two different skill sets. Very different. Being great at doing a thing and being a great at developing other people to do that thing are incredibly different. They are incredibly different, and you see that tension on every sales floor you go into just about. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Especially in brokers. And, that, and that's part of what 
breeds a poor culture, right? Yeah, I was, I was just about to ask you if you if you thought you built a better culture by promoting your point guards rather than promoting your your shooting guards. Oh, like undeniably, it, it's 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 a fine line to walk on both sides, certainly because you want to reward your high performers, but it's 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 also about defining what are the different characteristics of high performance. Sales is one of those things. But so is like so are softer skills and the ability to develop other people. There's a range of things that make you a high performer in any given role. And whether those translate to the next role is important. You don't want to you don't want to just promote the worst performers because they're the like the best culture or best locker room guys, if you will. But uh, you certainly like the middle of the pack performers who excel at those softer skills and they can really develop other people. Those are the ones that you really want to promote and find other ways to reward your, your revenue high performers. And that is, uh, that's a very difficult task. That's probably another portion of being transparent, right? Is having those open conversations, which are, which is not an easy conversation to have, especially if it's coming from the the management position rather than the, the the earner of the revenue. To have that conversation, to ask them what would be a better way to motivate them rather than just rather than a promotion. All of this goes back to being intentional about the actions that you do. Like, and and to your point about openness, Andrew, having the conversation with individuals about what motivates them. I was talking with Peter earlier today, our CEO, about how, you know, historically, when you talk about incentive, it is it's been synonymous with compensation. But incentivization should not be synonymous with compensation. There are other things besides money that incentivize people to do the things that you want them to do. You need to be insightful about all of the things that you are doing to incentivize or de-incentivize people. So it all comes back to all of these things that we've talked about today, come back to being in intentional about the actions you're taking in your business. Whether you use a non-compete or a non-solicit, it's about being intentional about the problems you want to solve, how you reward and promote, how you compensate. All of those things are looking inside your business and being intentional about them. So, Ryan, you advise a lot of transportation companies. Carrier Direct advises a lot of carrier uh, or a lot of transportation companies on these on these questions here. So you've seen a lot. So basically, have you ever heard of incentivizing A and getting B? Kind of you're incentivizing people to do one thing and the results are producing something else. That well, you are think usually you're to do one thing, but uh, yeah, then you have but, else. Yes, yeah, exactly right, and it's probably not a productive thing usually. Uh, what is where do you see that most often? Is it in compensation? Is it in in promotion? Is it through those oh, soft skills, yeah, hard skills? That's a great question. It's actually across all uh, your entire operating model. So there's process inputs to that. There's job profile inputs to that. There's operating models inputs to that. And then there's certainly compensation. So um, one big miss we see that people just kind of don't identify on their own is how your roles are organized and whether or not it actually reinforces the behavior you want. I'll use a brokerage example, Kevin, because you've been continuing to talk about brokerage. 
So many brokers have account managers that are both farmers who have to like aggressively go out and get a transactional business and what I would call gatherers who just like take in order tenders and build loads, et cetera. And that's one role and it's comped the same way in most businesses. But those are very different roles, right? Oh, very and different. So you'll look at you'll look at a gatherer account manager and say they're doing a bad job. And you'll look at a farmer and you'll say that, oh, this is a high performer. Both of them may be high performers. Your roles are incorrect to get what you want out of. Mm-hmm. Right? So yeah, that's one yeah. of the biggest inputs. That that is. So that's one of the 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 really big things because I see that all the time myself is is yeah. there's good farmers and there's good hunters, and those are completely different roles. But they're you can be very good at one or the other. You can be very good at both, but usually one or the other people are really good at. Sure, and that's why like brokerages moved to buy sell. You know, back mm-hmm. in the back haulers days in the first place, yep. selling to a truck is different than selling to a to a customer. There are similarities and you have to have the similar information. Mm -hmm. They're different sales processes. Yes. They're much different. different. Yeah. Well, yeah, go ahead. Uh, Ryan, I just wanted to thank you for your time and tell you how uh, absolutely fantastic that beard is looking. I hope you keep that thing going. Yeah. My wife has been trying to trim it herself and I'm like, absolutely not. So you got to sleep lightly these days. We're going to see. Yeah. I really like that hoodie. That is a great yeah, hoodie. Yeah, yeah, you can send you. you can I send a couple it. of them to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Yeah, I think Kevin and I would, would rock those. Okay, all right, I'll talk to Peter about that one. Okay, <laughs> all definitely. Right. All right, Ryan, you have a good one, man. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me, y'all. No problem. Thank you, Ryan. All right, so we didn't quite finish our discussion on the uh, the DHL supply chain pricing power index. We basically just had mentioned that it, it's fallen fifteen percent, or it's fallen fifteen points rather. Uh, volumes are falling through the roof. There's no real floor in sight, even though we kind of maybe are seeing a little bit of a deceleration into the into the trough this week. Uh, but again, most of the businesses are still closed. Freight's just not moving right now. Well, you know, basically uh, all retail, all non-essential businesses are, are closed down. So you got to think that it's going to take a hit in the freight markets, and that's what it's doing right now. Uh, so for the next few weeks, it's it's going to be a very tough environment. Yep, I'm glad you mentioned retail. That that kind of leads us into our first long short. Very we good. have been, I have been long awaiting this data set. I've kind of had it bookmarked on my calendar for the last couple of weeks now. We have retail sales data that will come out, I think, 8:30 tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I have a feeling this is going to be just a dreadful number. I'm expecting double digits downwards. The the consensus is about seven percent year over year down. Kevin, I'm asking you: Are you long or are you short? Double digit uh, downside to retail spending when it comes out tomorrow. I am long double digit. I think there'll be it'll be more than it'll be ten percent or more. Right. Uh, I'm glad you said that because I, I have a little data here. Uh, I'll, I'll throw it in the article or in something that we've we seen we put that article. This out. That's one of the reasons why I, I I'm going long that. Yes. Actually. This is this is some scary data from J P Morgan. So this is on their debit and credit card sales volume. Uh, so they break it down into four categories: one being supermarkets, uh, wholesale clubs, and discount stores; then retail, restaurants, and travel and uh, travel and leisure. So travel and leisure down 100%. It's dragging along the x-axis. Uh, down 100%. Re- 100%. And, and that, that correlates to uh, the, the TSA data that we yes. talked about yes, this morning on the coronavirus freight market update, is that there's about 4% 
at the height of four percent of passenger travel on planes compared to this day last year, and that's been very consistent over the last month. I mean, four percent. Yeah, and just think about that. The, like, the, the, like normally, two point five million people are checked in through TSA per day in the U.S. United States. Right, a hundred thousand yesterday. And, I mean, and you have to you have to think about the how that drips into hotel expenditures, how that drips into even restaurants. I mean, there's there's so many things yeah. that the the people that would be traveling would be spending money on money on that they're not spending that would be considered uh, consumer spending. And I, I trust real time consumer, you know, debit and credit card payments much more than than economic uh, data that's released. Agreed. Anthony right, Smith might not agree with me based. over here, but uh, I. I, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think the data coming from the payment processors is, is much closer. I mean, you know, it's it's just like comparing the weekly jobless claims to the unemployment rate, whereas the weekly jobless claims is a much uh, mm-hmm. it's a it's a data that's collected from people actually applying rather than a household survey, household service, uh, yeah. like like that one is. Uh, so yeah, I agree with you. I do think uh, spending is going to be down double digits. I think it may be down considerably, something like fifteen or twenty. Uh, What's our next long short? Uh, yeah, so we got one more long short. Uh, it is we're talking about the S and P five hundred. So all time highs. We were at February thirteenth. We were at three hundred and forty dollars on the SPY, the Spider Index. We are currently uh, at two eighty two. So that is we are we are twenty three percent up off the lows that we experienced just three weeks ago, mm-hmm. and that that low was two eighteen. So that was down thirty four percent in total. My question to you, Kevin. Do you think that we can hit all-time highs in the S- the S and P 500 by the end of the year? That would be a run of another roughly 20 percent from where we're at today. Can we hit it sometime during sometime during, this time? during 2020? I'm going to go long. Will we end up there? Probably not. But I think we you know we might be able to to run up 20 percent at some point over the next eight months. Why I mean, I, I've seen these markets are <laughs> are just are, are bonkers. I mean, they yeah. they we're up. You know, twenty five percent off the lows a couple weeks ago, or the lows were down thirty five percent. I mean, they're just very volatile, wild swings. I don't think we're done retesting the lows, but who knows? We might be. I mean, all the investment banks are seemingly now pushing forward that that the the bear market is over. This is the new bull market, and it's here to stay. I've seen that from pretty much everybody. Even though we know GDP number is going to be terrible, we know that the Fed has pumped a lot of money in. We, we know all of these things that unemployment is going to be twenty twenty percent or so. We know all of these things are coming. But the market seemingly are shaking it off. They're shaking it off, and basically on this uh, criteria, which I don't think is a, a really good thesis or this thesis. I, I don't know if this thesis that that everyone's going to return back to work and everything's going to be smooth again. Yeah, this is not going to be a smooth transition. So uh, there's going to be a lot of rocky patches, ups and downs. It's it's not going to be smooth. And I think with the thesis that oh yeah. Everything is just going to be linear. Let's then, just then, say you linear. See, uh, then you may see all-time highs. That, that's your point? That, that's my point. That's the yep. thesis that probably the market is going off of, which is not a very good thesis whatsoever. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I, I don't know if we hit all-time highs, but I see another a big run in the SPY. We can give a couple plugs. So we've got a new paper coming out this Friday, the Freight Intel. We're doing a credit analysis paper. This is kind of a continuation of our great quarter guys last week. Uh, we talked about yes. credit, credit analysis. And Customer the, credit risk. Uh, account, accounts receivable risk that people will be going through. Uh, you guys are back with Put That Coffee Down tomorrow. What's on the docket? Tomorrow, and we're going to use, uh, we're going to talk about using video to make sales in the demo process. We did video last week to, uh, to prospect, kind of, or individual video, yep. and we're going to take that one step further this week. 
All righty. So that is at 12 o'clock tomorrow. On Thursday, we've got another coronavirus market update. And then Friday, we're back to close the week out, 12 noon with uh, with What the Truck, Dooner yep. and the Dude. Yep. And and Wednesdays, we have Fredonomics and with Sonar as well. That's right. we got lots of lots of great media coming for you in the next few days. Stay tuned. Here's episode 25 in the books. Thanks, guys. <laughs>